I'm Shannon. And I'm Rami, and this is Workplace Hugs. We talk about interesting things we've read and how it relates to the workplace experience. Our goal here is simple. Help all of us expand our workplace toolkit with a whole bunch of empathy without a whole new degree. We'll purposefully talk about it in three different scenarios. We'll hit it on the high level, talk about how we've experienced it at the lowest level, and then we'll share some ways for you to take this back into your own workplace life. This week, I'm excited by just the thought of the title of this book. It sounds like a magician's uh, autobiography, like subtitle or something. What are we talking about? (laughs) We're talking about a a book from 2000 called The Art of Possibility by Benjamin Zander and his wife, Rosamund Zander. And what's interesting, so Ben was a conductor, and I think Rosamund is a coach or was was a coach. I don't know if they're still alive train conductor yes so there's a lot of musical references in the book i listened to the audiobook version it was kind of fun because they had like orchestral music like between the different parts uh but essentially this book is really about looking at life as if everything is an invention so but it is, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it really is. So he says in the book at some point, he's like, the number 68 invented the letter A invented, like, literally, everything is just kind of made up, which is kind of a little bit of a head trip to think about. But if you choose to look at your life this way, or in this case, your work, then your problems may start to fade or shape shift in ways that make them begin to feel solvable when they otherwise might not. And I think interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the best ways to do this is to focus on the possibilities surrounding you in any situation versus slipping into that default mode we can sometimes of measuring and comparing our life or our career path to other people. So how it relates to empathy, I think, is that we can cultivate more empathy with ourselves and with others by choosing to look at life in this new way. And there's a couple of different things that he talks about in the book that I want to touch on. I think there's five from the book that I'm going to touch on today. The first one is a concept that he called, it's all in the frame. So every problem, every dilemma, every dead end only appears unsolvable inside a particular frame, right? And so sometimes we need to enlarge the box or create another frame around the data and the problems vanish while new opportunities begin to appear. So in the book, he uses this like very simple example of like a nine dot puzzle. So imagine like grid paper or all the paper that people are using for bullet journaling these days, just like nine dots, three by three grid. And tic-tac-toe board. Yeah, kind of. And you're asked to connect all of those dots using four lines. Like you have to, get through every single dot. And it yep. seems unsolvable at first, right? But if you enlarge... This is the one where you build the house, right? And you go further than the length of the exactly, paper? Exactly, exactly. Mm. So if you enlarge the frame, like for many people, it seems unsolvable because they're trying to think about it only within the context of those nine dots. Like you have, you can't extend beyond those nine dots. That's never mm. said anywhere in the rules. Like you can draw a line that goes through and past to then try to solve the problem, which I thought is a really powerful example. And I'm curious, Rami, can you think of a time in your career when you had to enlarge the frame to find a solve? So I think 
to me the the thing with enlarging the frame that I've always found really successful is talking to people who have no idea what I do. Oh. In that I like to go to others with problems because they'll think at it think about it in a very different way. Like the frame that I'm putting around my problem isn't a frame that they're putting around it. Yeah. And so when I go to them and I say, here's here's the issue that I'm struggling with. The questions that I get from them aren't questions I would have asked myself. They're questions that enlarge my frame because they're not thinking about it critically in the same lens that I am. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I've found that a lot of times I'll have a problem. I'll reach out to somebody who does something completely different than me and have them kind of help me poke at it. And usually that's when I get outside of that frame and start to see that I'm putting unnecessary threshold around it. Yeah. And I suspect that you do this for a lot of other people, just kind of having an insight into how your brain works. I think this is a natural gift of yours of being able to think outside the box or outside of the frame that we prescribe to sometimes. It's so interesting because in in it, I feel like this phrase has become more disliked over time, but that idea of like diversity of thought is something that I really like. And I think even back to like when you and I both started out as analysts, like the, the, the three analysts who I like spent the most time with in the early part of my career, one of them had a degree in marketing. One of them had a degree in history my degree is in cellular and molecular biology. <laughs> and I think the other one maybe was business or something else. I don't remember. But when you come from very different um, scholarly backgrounds, I think it, it you've been trained to think in certain ways through your degree. Yeah. Right? If you're in a science degree, it's hypothesize, like come up with your, your steps, test, and then like take away your learnings and then iterate, right? Business is going to be very different. History is going to be very different, right? Like history is more an analysis of what happened and less a a test and hypothesize type thing. And so I think having those people work in different frameworks has always helped me like break that frame when I get stuck. Yeah, I think it's why I've always been partial to liberal arts degrees because even in the analysts that I hired, I could think about how it just felt like they were able to see things in a bigger frame, you know, be be more attuned to how a decision based in math might affect a a social outcome, if you will, or something like that. Like they could see the interdisciplinary of the social sciences a little bit, or of all the sciences a bit. Um, Okay, so that's about really thinking about how can we expand our frame. The second principle from the book that I really took away that I wanted to touch on is this concept that he talks about of giving yourself an A. Ooh. So he started, I think he teaches at like the high school level or maybe college level, the composer or not the composer, the conductor. And in, he talks about a story about how in one of his classes, he encouraged all the students to write a letter to themselves telling the story of how they would get an A that semester. And he reads some of those stories, and it's so powerful to me to hear them because 
you can see how the students begin to shift from like uh, closed off or like discipline or rigid perspective to more expansive and open of what might become possible or what is possible. And he has this beautiful quote in the book that I feel like I say to clients now all the time of giving yourself an A is not an expectation to live up to, but a possibility to live into. Say that one more time. It's not about an expectation to live up to, but a possibility to live into. Oh, I like that live into. How fun. So the idea is that you, at the beginning of something or or when you're trying to achieve something, so the groundwork here is a class, you say, okay, I'm going to get an A. I'm going to write the story of how I got the A. And I'm currently, I'm writing from the perspective of I'm the person that got an A. Yes. Yes. And Rami got an A. And here are the things that Rami did throughout this semester to get this A. Yes. Yes. Uh, And we'll talk about this a little bit more in the tactical of what are some of the details in terms of how you might write this A letter and what to consider and what not to. But I think it can be really powerful. And and maybe it's just that I do this all all the time now as a coach, but really getting people hooked on like, what's that vision that you're trying to get to versus the like... I don't know, making it some bar or some threshold that you've got to cross. Yeah. I think you're right. It's it's that expectation versus the possibility. Yeah. Like you don't have to force yourself to do that thing because you said it, but you you could potentially achieve that thing because you said you could. Yes. Sometimes what I see in folks is a hesitancy or a nervousness to declare a vision at all for what they might hope to have happen in their life or their career. And I think this quote like sums up in a nutshell why you, you should just not be fearful. If you're living from fear, it's because you're treating it as an expectation. If you like dare to say the words of what you want versus a possibility of like, oh, but, wouldn't that be fun? But Shannon, come on. That's it's it, I, I can understand this for myself like i would be nervous about doing this because i i would think of it as an expectation like i would set that that restriction for myself yeah i think breaking out of that is really hard yeah and so well i mean we'll get into this later but i can see why doing this could be very daunting because i think about it for myself and i see it being very daunting yeah. And so maybe for for folks who it feels really, I remember it feeling daunting for me too, because I lived in very much an expectations world up until maybe four or five years ago. And I think now it's how do we begin to pivot that that in ourselves by realistically reaching? That's what I'll say to clients sometimes of like, okay, so maybe start small with this giving yourself an A. What feels realistic but like you reach it like just a little bit, like you read mm-hmm. 24 books a year and maybe you say it's 26 next year. If that's something yeah. that's really important to you, like, you know, go from 26 to 52. Like, no, don't do that. That's <laughs> unrealistically reaching. Uh, move the needle in a small, tangible, like manageable way. And we'll talk more about that later. And like, how, how can you go about doing that? Okay. So then the third tidbit from the book is all about being a contribution. And I think we say this a lot, but I love how he talks about it in the book. He says, unlike success and failure, a contribution has no other side. 
it's not arrived at by comparison, if you will. So Mm -hmm. we need to replace that fearful question of like, oh, well, is this enough? Is this enough for me to be successful or like to get what I want with the joyful question of like, how will I contribute today? I really like that because it, there's this perpetual urge, I think, within us and maybe just me of like, have I done enough today? Have I done enough? Have I done enough? Yeah. Like, but, but there's no, there's no threshold or bar that you're setting for yourself. Like, how do you, how do you ever know if you did enough? Like, oh, I got through my, my checklist today. Yes. That was enough. Yes. Or was it enough? I don't know. I could have gone for a run and then done my checklist and I could have made dinner for the family. Like, is all of that enough? But I think what you're saying here is the reframe of, well, how did I contribute today? Right. And yes. it's like, well, no, I got these things done and I did this for myself and I did this for my family. Like I contributed in those ways and I can feel more, I can feel more joyful because of the repivot of that question. Totally. And he talks about this in the book too, but I think it's about he and she, I think it's because Ben narrates most of it that I just assume you wrote most of it. Uh, but he talks about like how when we focus on being a contribution, it really produces a shift away from self-concern and helps us engage more in relationship with others or in relationship, even the things that are important to us, like you can still be contributing to your health by going for a walk that day or something, but still be focused on like how that will impact the greater good, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're often more rewarding and enduring than when we focus on the is it enough thing. Do I have enough money? Do I have enough power? Do I have enough whatever? Like, no, no, no. Like, how did you contribute today? Or how do you want to contribute today? That's really interesting. Because I think now that I think about it, the, the enough is usually something tangible and like physical, like Am I, am I earning enough? Am I, is my title enough? Is it, are these, are these very tangible things? Is the amount that I can weight lift and bench press and squat enough? Yes. Where if you think about like your contribution, it's way different because it's not like, oh, did I, did I love enough today? Yes. Like how, how, like that's not a, a tactical thing that you can measure. You can measure your, your income. You can measure your, your title. You can measure the amount of weight that you lift or, or whatever that is, but you can't measure the amount of love that you gave. Yes. Maybe if you can chart out the heart, like the hugs and the kisses, and and there's some sort of... bullet journal on that for (laughs) a month. But, yeah, I can think of times for me... I'm human. Like, this happens to me still where I can get really stuck on as an entrepreneur, like, oh, am I doing enough? Like, Mm -hmm. am I doing enough on social media? Am I doing enough, like, engagement, outreach, metric, metric, (laughs) metric? And whenever I catch myself in that game, now it's a little bit more in my psyche to remember to switch to like, wait a second, how do I want to contribute today? What do I want to offer people today to Mm -hmm. focus on or think about or try on for size versus making it about like, am I doing enough for them to hire me? Like, ah, yuck, like leave that behind. And I I think think you can apply that to many different types of businesses and workplaces. I agree. I think it's also like a reframe of like your day to day, right? Like, is the like, today, I need to do these things. 
I think it's the, well, okay, I need to do those things, but what's the like end goal with that? Yes. And is there a different way for me to approach that? Yes. Right. I think for you, it's okay. I want to engage with my, my social media followers. Yes. And I'm going to connect with them in some way. Maybe for you enough used to be, I need three posts or eight right, posts. Right. And this is what it's going to be. And now it's like, maybe I just do one that's like really meaningful and that's how we can connect. Totally. And in terms of how it might apply to a more traditional workplace, I can think back to when I made it about like, oh, am I doing enough to like be competitive for that promotion? Or when people on my team were, and that was just so unattractive Mm -hmm. compared to when uh, you focused on contributing like, oh, well, how am I going to contribute to this project around reshaping how we think about transitions at Target? Or how am I going to think about contributing to this goal that we have as a company to reduce X, Y, or Z inventory spent, you know, like Mm -hmm. shift, 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 shift in that one, usually. Okay, I could talk about that one forever. On to the next one. So number four is all about mistakes. And he has this process with students where when they would make a mistake as they were performing, he would encourage them to literally like throw up their hands and say, how fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Which I think brings a lot of humor and laughter to something that could otherwise go a very different way, right? Like it's a mistake. So you could beat yourself up and be self-deprecating or just like, how fascinating. Like, look at that. I made a mistake. What are we going to do about it? I really like this. I struggle with how to replicate this in other spaces Mm. because I think in this space, it's, they're all, they're orchestral conductors. And Uh so they're learning how to conduct and they're doing it in this space and the, the professor is giving them one. I think he is making the space a very comfortable space for them. And allowing them to be vulnerable in this way. Mm-hmm. And I think the the way that he ties the humor in here works really well. I think I would struggle with this in a space where it you can't be as vulnerable. And I think a lot of us in our workspaces don't feel like we have the ability to be vulnerable because people will see it as a weakness, right? It's that it's that balance that that our good friend Brene Brown always talks about of like how do you balance that vulnerability with strength so that people don't take advantage of your vulnerability? Yes. And maybe it starts with self, a self-empathy focus, like a self-examination of how you f- treat yourself when you have a mistake or something goes yes. wrong in your work yes, or your business. Yes, I like that. Just, I like that. Like maybe you can't go publicly to your boss and come into their office. like, I messed this thing up. Oh, fascinating. Like, oh. Like, let's just laugh about this. However, even that being said, I can remember uh, my first leader when I first led a team emphasizing to me and saying to me, how do you cultivate a learning culture? Mm -hmm. Thank you, Brendan Dillon. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And that has always stuck with me of how can I create some safety or levity or humor around mistakes. And I remember telling analysts at Target, like, everybody's going to have their million-dollar moment where you make a million-dollar mistake. Like, literally. Mm-hmm. I can remember my first million-dollar mistake at Target. and First of many. Yeah, like, they happen. <laughs> and uh, I think the more that we can normalize that 
mistakes have happen and also how are we going to learn from them it's a nuance between like mistakes happen like whatever don't care <laughs> and oh my gosh how fascinating that this mistake happened how do we bring it into the light so we have some courage to look at it and figure out what we need to do differently versus like shoving it away in a dark corner of a drawer and pretending it didn't happen yes i agree i think as a leader you have the ability to make a space that allows your team to feel comfortable sharing mistakes and being vulnerable in that way i think the the reframe that i like that you had brought up earlier is for yourself like how do you when you make a mistake like like find a way to laugh it off yeah because it's going to happen right there's um there's a process called six sigma right and it it means that within i don't remember what it is like a few hundred thousand a few hundred thousand different like steps you'll only have three mistakes mm-hmm. and this is done in manufacturing of things like pacemakers like they cannot make any mistakes throughout that entire process of making that pacemaker yep. but if you think about yourself you can't run at a six sigma level right like you're gonna mistype every single like hour of the day like you are going to mistype a word or you're going to use the wrong word or you're going to spell it wrong right each one of those is a tiny mistake and i think being able to Realize that, one, you cannot run at a Six Sigma level. You can't have three mistakes and 300,000. Not possible. But also being able to find the humor in those to to realize that you are a human being and humans make mistakes. Yes. And that is okay. And I think being kind to yourself when you do that, small or big. And then hopefully you have the space and the leadership to help you take away from those really big mistakes and not not burden yourself with that forever right yeah. like a big mistake like shane's talking about a million dollar mistake and what i think is partially humorous is that there's no facetiousness in in the quantity of money that she's referring oh, to. oh no none whatsoever <laughs> which is which is terrifying right if you think about being in a really small company like i am if i made a million dollar mistake our company wouldn't exist right yes i made a million dollar mistake when i worked at target didn't affect anything right, right? <laughs> I learned from it because they just paid a million dollars to teach me uh-huh. because of that mistake. Uh-huh. And so I learned a lot from it and we found a way to fix those things. But it, it's hopefully you have the leadership and the, and the, and the, the space to learn from those things when you do make that big mistake so that you can learn from it. And I think when it's those smaller ones and you, you're, you're putting that pressure on yourself realize that you're human and just just appreciate the the how fascinating yes uh, advice that we have here yes this is one that i was curious for us to explore a little bit deeper to give some examples more for folks rami how do you address mistakes like within yourself if we go back to that self-empathy piece i think it's always it's to me it's always taking a step back i think when i make a mistake or I do something and I get really frustrated with myself, I always say, okay, one, addressing it and saying, like, this isn't who I am. This feeling that I have right now is not Rami all the time. Mm-hmm. Rami is not always frustrated with himself. Yep. And I think separating myself from that frustration, acknowledging it, saying, yep, I'm frustrated. I get it. I know why I'm frustrated. Acknowledging it and then not letting that frustration dictate any other part of me 
And sometimes it's like, okay, I just need to walk away. I need to walk away. I need to go for a walk. I need to take a break. I need to go like do whatever it is to like reset myself. Yeah. But I think being able to acknowledge it, being able to separate myself from it, I think are the, are the things for me that at least help me get past it because with bigger mistakes, it sucks. It just sucks. Yeah. It sucks. sucks And I hate it so much because we all have high standards for ourselves and we all want to be perfect. But I think we know that we can't be. And so in the moments where that happens, it's acknowledge it, learn from it, but separate yourself from those feelings because that's not who you are. You're not a person that's always um, kicking yourself when you're down. And if you are, find a way to start to appreciate the things that you do accomplish, right? And maybe it's that pivot on, okay, maybe this is the mistake I made, but let me think about the last few weeks and all the like amazing things that I've done. Yeah. And, and I think this happens a lot with certain types of leaders, they'll only focus on the mistakes that you made, which is super unhealthy. And so if, if you're, if you're a good employee and you're sharing with them all the, the issues that come up, right? You're not hiding these things. Like I made these mistakes. Here are the things that happened. Well, you're probably doing that more frequently than you're sharing the good things that you're doing. Mm. And so your leadership is probably only seeing you in that negative light where you're doing 99% of the things really well and maybe even better than well, but you're not, you're not constantly saying, Oh, Hey Shannon, look at this cool thing I did. Hey Shannon, look, we're, we're in stock again. Hey yeah. Shannon, look, I got the bottles here on time. We can produce when we want to. Yep. Hey, hey Shannon, look, my marketing campaign, I got 101% of my sales. Right. Do you see that? Do you right. see that? Right. And so I think from that perspective too, it's hard because those are the things we focus on are the negatives, not the positives. Yes. And to be very mindful of that, because that is your brand outward to other people. I think for me, when I think about addressing mistakes on the inside, I used to rip myself a new one. And I go back to Brene Brown a little bit. And how do we tell the difference between shame and guilt? Shame is, I am a bad person. Guilt is, I did a bad thing. And so noticing that difference I would constantly move into a shame spiral of like, Mm -hmm. this means I'm a terrible human being when really it could just be, okay, I feel a little bit guilty. I did a bad thing. And I think what shifted this for me to moving to more of like a how fascinating mindset is I think what, what helps relieve shame is when we bring it into the light with others. So even today, if I catch myself going down a shame spiral, I will like stop, drop and grab a partner, you know, like, Ask Nate for five minutes, my husband, and say, okay, this thing happened with this client. Uh, I I felt like I said that thing and I shouldn't have said it that way. And it just helps me get out of like the shame thing and move Mm -hmm. it more to like a guilt thing of like, okay, I did a bad thing. How am I going to do it differently next time? Shame versus guilt. I like that. Okay. So the last one that I'm just going to touch on super quick that he shares in the book is about enrolling others. So this is about how do we spark possibility in them versus cajole, force, or provoke. And we do that by speaking to the passions of the other person versus the fears of the other person and trying to tell a we story and ask the we questions. So what do we want to have happen here versus making it about forcing or yeah, cajoling them into it. Cajole. What a fun word. I I think that's a fun word to say, too. Cajole. Okay, so let's get into tactics. How can you bring this home to your life, to your work life? 
the first thing that I want to encourage you to do that I know Robbie is uncomfortable with is to write your A letter. So your A letter should be in the past tense. You should share all of the insights that you've gained. You should list the accomplishments and the things that you've done that you'd like to do. But most importantly, note the attitudes, feelings, or worldview that this person has to get to their A. And then just like, as he says in the book, fall passionately in love with that person. I think where we get visioning wrong sometimes is where we focus just on the achievements, but we don't think about, okay, well, the how, like how the heck did we get there? And that's where the attitudes and feelings come in. There might be some things that you need to tweak and adjust on the inside to reshape the outside. And Shannon, it's not like you tactically say, okay, here's step A, here's step B, here's step A through Z. Yeah. It's more of a through these various tactics, I accomplished my goal. Yes, exactly. And I can think of a time uh, really quick where I did this in a professional sense before I had read this book, but looking back in hindsight, I'm like, oh, yeah, I did that. Where at the company that I worked for, they were changing the annual review system. So only 10% of the population was going to get a three, which was the best rating you could get. And once I learned that, I I literally went to my leader and I said, okay, here are the things that I think I'm going to need to do to get to be that like elite 10% three. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Anything you would add or take away? So we're almost like crafting the roadmap in advance of like, oh, okay, well, you want a five or a three or or an 85 out of 100 or whatever the inner review system is in your company. Awesome. Work backwards to it. What's it going to take to get there, both in terms of what you've achieved and how you'll need to adjust your being, how you're showing up in the workplace to get those results? I really like that. I think especially in the situation you're talking about, it's how do you get alignment with your boss on the expectations for your role and for what you're trying to achieve? Because I think so many times people don't have the conversation, they deliver, and then they go, look, I exceeded all expectations. And then your boss goes, well, no, no, those were baseline expectations. That's what I expected you to do. Yes. And you go, well, wait, what? Yes. That's what you expected from me? And I like I killed myself to do those. And they're like, well, no, that that's fine that you killed yourself. But like, that's what we expected from you. Yes, yes. So trying in some ways, the A letter can be a way of soliciting buy in and support before you even get down that path too far. The second thing that I think you could take away and a practice in your workplace life today is wherever you are comparing, shift to contributing. So wherever you are comparing your work to somebody else's, um, your, your results to somebody else's, shift to how you want to contribute to this organization, to this company, to this project, to this initiative. And with, go ahead. Wait, can I just say one thing? I think the, the main piece of feedback to take with the contributing piece is like, you are enough. And so I think Mm. reminding yourself that, and then using that shift to say, well, how am I contributing? Like I'm enough. I know I'm enough. Yeah. And how am I contributing? and, And how is that making an impact? And I think pivoting that piece, uh, is to me the biggest takeaway is how do you show up and show your contributions rather than a a hurdle that you have to prove that you are enough. Yes. And so taking it to as a reflective practice versus an additive practice. So reflecting on how you contributed this day, week or month, that's a great place that I'll encourage clients to start instead of feeling the pressure of like, a, oh, I have to say how I'm going to contribute tomorrow or next year. Like you can Uh just look at it in hindsight for now too, as a beautiful way to support yourself. I love that. So with that, we'd love for you to join in on the conversation. 
on Instagram at Workplace Hugs. I've been Shannon. I've been Rami. And this has been Workplace Hugs. <laughs> <laughs>